there and welcome to the Game Pit. This is episode 14.3 and it's another one of our Essence Spiel specials. We're going to be taking you through some of the games that have caught our eye, but this isn't necessarily our final viewpoint. We're just going to be taking you through what we think of the game now. Ronan, what's your first three games? Well, the three games I'd like to preview today, Sean, are Templar, Lewis and Clark and Legacy. And I'll be talking about Carnival Zombie. Yunnan and Trains and Stations. We are really proud and happy to announce that this is our first ever episode as a member of the Dice Tower Network. If you head over to dicetowernetwork.com, you will find over 20 of the best gaming podcasts available and us. You can also find lots of audio, video and written gaming goodness at 2d6.org. So first up for me is a game called Carnival Zombie. It's designed by Matteo Santos, who did Munera Familia Gladiatoria, Saki and Samurai, and Beer and Vikings. The publisher is Albe Pavo and Raven Distribution, and it plays one to six with a time frame of about 90 minutes. The mechanics of this game are that it's a cooperative card drafting area movement game. In Carnival Zombie, a huge leviathan, that lay dead for centuries under the very foundations of the city of Venice, is coming back to life, threatening to destroy the entire city, and if that wasn't enough, the dead are rising across the city. In the game, players are simply trying to either escape through the city streets without being overrun by the hordes of undead, or to ultimately defeat the Leviathan somehow. The game takes place over several days and nights with different objectives depending on whether it's actually daytime or nighttime. In the night phase, players must seek refuge and defend themselves against the infected. That's what they're called in the game. It's basically holding on and staying alive until the morning comes and then the infected move away. During the day, players can move around, collect items and generally move closer to escape but the city is going to be sinking around them as the Leviathan stirs underneath. One interesting mechanic is that when players kill a zombie character, they must take the cube representing that zombie and drop it onto a tile called the Pile of Corpses, with the rule being that you must drop it and you can't touch any other tile or zombie cubes until it's been dropped. If that cube or any other cube falls off the tile, it's returned to the game board, ready to attack the players again. So as this pile builds up it becomes more and more precarious and any sort of dropping of a cube can roll off and it's i think it's an interesting mechanic that we'll probably talk about a little bit later players don't actually have physical hit points and instead they have a stress counter so the more stressed players become the harder the game gets for them and if you get too stressed you can become incapacitated if all the players become incapacitated, the game is lost and the Leviathan and Infected win. Now, I haven't really gone through the intricate mechanics of this game because there is quite a lot to the little bits and pieces, but that's just a general overview. Ronan, what did you think when you looked over this game? Well, the first thing I thought about it is, uh, oh no, another zombie game. Because, in my opinion, I know that you are a big fan of zombie games. Oh, I'm just over the zombie thing. Uh, but you made me have a look at this, despite my better judgment. And first things up, visually, very, very striking. 
It's got that Venetian carnival style artwork to it. Lots of different characters in the game and they've all got individual traits and individual artwork and it just looks amazing. It really is gorgeous and striking. See, I'm not actually a big fan of the artwork itself, but it does lend itself to this game. It strangely blends with the game and actually makes the artwork a little bit more impressive. I think the cards and the boards are a little bit busy for my taste and it looks really confusing. Obviously, this is from looking at it from afar. I am so uh, confused by you. <laughs> you're you're the bits, bloke. You're the, it doesn't look amazing. Don't worry about it being functional, fella. Yeah, but on this one, it just does look really, really busy for me. And I, it looks like it's going to be confusing to play. That That might completely go away when I'm standing next to it and watching it being played but at the moment I'm not a massive fan of the design of it but as I said the cards do lend themselves to the theme of the game which I do enjoy I think when you talk about it, it seems like it could be fiddly to play is that the artwork style or that manual that's out it reads like like an old style Avalon Hill manual with the rule 1.1.1, 1.1.1.2.8, 1.1.3, your nephew, your uncle, 8.7.9.z. It's It reads like a technical manual and it throws in exceptions all over the place. It doesn't flow very easily, the rule book. I think if ever there was a game cried out for a gameplay video to show you how it all fits together and remove some of that feeling that it's a bit fiddly, it's this game. I don't think it's going to be that fiddly to play, but the the rule book almost works against you. So is it that that rule book's a bit frilly, so you're not really getting a clear idea of how to play it, and then when you've got all this detailed artwork, it's, it's not really helping with the overall picture? I think they've tried to take a rule book in a different direction. They've started with like even scenarios before they tell you the mechanics of the game. Like The actual game is hinged on this day and night, and the actual player sequence if you like of day and night is actually quite simple you do this you do this you do this and then you can do this or this that's quite simple but that's halfway down the book there's a load of text i mean there's what is there 30 pages or something silly or 25 pages to this rule book and there's hardly any rules in it it's just this is what you do then and this is just set up and it's loads of pictures and this is a scenario for this and this is a scenario for that and just give us the rules and then have the scenarios as an appendices at the end, surely. Yeah, it kind of feels like it's trying really, really hard to over-explain things and to make things clear. And in doing so, it's actually making it more difficult to get what they're talking about. I mean, one of the examples is there's day and night and there's a dawn in between. I think there's four different types of cards you can play, depending on what time of day it is. Looking at it, it shows you a chart. There's a circle, and you just move around. And in each circle, there's the symbols. If a card has that symbol on it, you can play it. So if it's got a moon, there's a moon in the night space, you can play a moon card, right? That is explained two or three times before we're ever shown that circle, which makes everything completely clear. They start talking about the cards and the phases, and there's all these different symbols that mean this and that. And they're out of context, and you're like, what? What's this card seem confusing? And then on page 14 or whatever it is, this circle comes in and it goes, there you go, that's what you're doing. You're just going round around that circle and it shows you what cards can be played. And you go, ah, oh, why didn't why didn't you tell me that before? Why am I worrying about this all the way through this rule book? Alarm bells rang for me when they 
actually do try and sort of tell you, don't worry, it's actually a really simple game. So they're almost apologising for all this nonsense in the rule book and saying, listen, yeah, here's a load of rubbish, don't worry, it's actually a pretty simple game, but you'll see that later. Yeah, you need to get an editor in there or someone who's really good at rule books, Universal Head or whoever, just have a look at it and go, guys, just cut this out, cut that out, move that there, boss, there's your 12-page rule book, no problems. Moving away from this rule book anyway, we're getting stuck on it. I'll tell you what is cool. There's about half a dozen boss characters in the game that are going to come out, and they're all individual, and they all have different powers, and they've all got individual artwork, and I thought they were really thematic and amazing. And the scariest one of all has got to be the tenor, because they all have descriptions for them in both Italian and English, but the tenor is only in Italian, and for some reason, that makes him scarier. I found the ringmaster quite scary. Was, uh, he didn't look right. But yeah, it's a really good idea. And I like that gives it an individuality. And players are going to be thinking, oh, God, if this one comes out, what are we going to do? And you're going to have to tackle them in different ways. You're going to have to really work together. And I like the thought of that. Another aspect that really, really interests me is the night and day aspect. It's been, it's been tackled before, I'm sure, in, in games. But I like the fact that you're just going to be besieged at night and in the daytime is when you're going to prepare for that night attack. And that's just every good zombie film around there. Just trying to see the night through, then get out, get your equipment, get your food, barricade yourself in for the night and then let all hell unleash. And I think the game is going to hinge on how well that mechanic works. Oh, for sure. It's the heart of the game, but I really, really like how they've done that. The border split in two, isn't it? And there's a map of Venice, and during the day you're moving around that map of Venice, and you're choosing where you're going to go and where you're going to hunker down. And the longer you spend travelling, the less time you've got to prepare yourselves and get barricades set up and what have you. And then you move into this night phase, and it's pretty much like Castle Panic, right? Where you're in the middle, and the waves of zombies and bosses are going to come from the edge, and you're trying to stop them from getting in towards you. Yeah, so it's like Castle Panic with an adult theme on it, with a bit more going on. That seems like a really good idea. Pile of corpses, Roland. That sounds like it could be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's... <laughs> uh, in this co-op, so you're allowed to hold it. There's no rule on how far above this little area you're allowed to hold these cubes. Can you imagine being the person who's having to drop one on when it's stacking up and up and things are under pressure a bit and people are pointing fingers and you drop it and you're the one who knocks eight cubes flying? Oh, sorry, everyone. Yeah, that could be absolutely hilarious and a game changer as well. If you do one shaky hand and you could you could set the hordes absolutely smashing into the barricades and all but devastate your team. So it's a lot of pressure. Another thing, given us a co-op game. Now, how many times do we hear that this is the co-op game that's going to solve the alpha player problem? Alpha player problem gone because of this co-op game. We said it before, if you've got an alpha player problem, the problem's with the players, not the game. It's not up to the designer to fix it. These guys have gone in a completely opposite direction. The the characters are, are number one to six, and they play in that order all the time. And character one is Captain Terror. He is the alpha player. He decides everything. Now, they do say in the rulebook that he's encouraged to talk to everyone, but he makes all the major decisions. And it says you should put someone pretty much bossy as Captain Terror. I'd be the other way around. I'd want to put someone quiet there because someone bossy is just going to go off and play the game by themselves. What do you think about how the way they've addressed that in making one player able to make lots of the decisions? I th- uh, You've just covered it. every point I had on that. Yeah, it's 
a recipe for disaster if you're playing with the wrong people or the wrong person because that person as you said i can't put it any better that person's going to play the game on their own almost are and you saying you're going to refuse to play this with me i think that's what we're boiling down to <laughs> i don't think i could take it i'll listen to you you'll just be wrong well, aren't I always, darling? <laughs> right. Uh, are you ready to sum up on Carnival Zombie? I think so. Well, this is even a surprise to me because I was expecting a bog standard zombie game. And what you get is a really thematic, almost Lovecraftian vibe going on, which I'm, I'm a big fan of Lovecraft. And you just you kind of get that sort of sense of terror just from reading the rule book. I hope this plays out as well as it looks like it's going to play out. Slight worry about the fact that they're making excuses on the rule book for for the terrible rule book, and slight worry over this lead character. But other than that, for me, it's a very hopeful treasure. Okay, so for me, it hasn't quite overcome my prejudice against zombie games. I'm not going to pick it up. I don't think it's a trap, but you know what? I'm really happy that you've made it a treasure and I'm going to try and talk you into buying it so I get to play it. (laughs) Okay, so moving on. The next game we want to talk about is Templar, The Secret Treasures, which is looks like it's going to be the big family release for this year from Queen Games at Essen. And if you've never been to Essen, Queen Games are a huge presence. They're probably the biggest presence of any publisher there. And they tend to bring out one big family game every year. And you'll just see it being played everywhere. Now, last year it was Escape Curse of the Temple. Uh, I wasn't asking the year before, but the year before that it was Fresco, which you saw all over the place. Uh, those are two games I really enjoyed. So that's why Templar has caught my eye. The designer is Jesus Torres Castro. He's had one game out before, Palacio de Viana. I've never heard of it. I don't know much about it. So it, there we go. What's this game all about? It's got a bit of a mental theme, to be honest with you. It's about treasures which are being shipped into a harbour and then... Whoever you're supposed to be, your your character, is going down to the harbour and then running back to the abbey and then they're going to hide their treasures in the 13 different rooms within the abbey to score points. I have no idea how this is supposed to make sense, but there we go, there it is. One thing before I go into it is there is a gameplay video on Board Game Geek which really well explains to you how you play the game and it's got the most terrifying voiceover of anything I've ever watched in my life. So if you're looking for a bit of a scare, go to Templar and Board Game Geek and click on that gameplay video from Queen. I, I don't know what happened there. It's upset me. So what does it look like? The main board shows the Abbey. And the Abbey has got these room spaces. It's got some corridors that connect them together. In each room, there are different spaces for specific types of treasures. There's three different types of treasures and they've all got specific places they can go. There's a secondary board, that's the harbour board, and that's, like I said, where the treasures are going to appear, and they appear in different warehouses there. Now, these treasures are represented initially by generic tokens. So there's going to be books, chalices, and signet rings coming in, and you just put a a neutral coloured one of each in the warehouses as they arrive. Each player's got his own stock of tokens for those books, chalices, and signet rings, and as they collect them from the harbour, they exchange those neutral colour ones for ones of their own colour and then they come into their possession. The idea is they're going to take the ones in their possession back to the Abbey and they're going to hide them. So how are they going to hide them in the Abbey? Each player has got 10 character cards. Those character cards are what is going to allow you to move around the two boards, 
hide your treasures in the rooms. It's going to allow you to score different rooms you're in. There's also, as well as the player characters, there's three sort of neutral characters within the Abbey, the Abbot and a couple of other guys. And you can move those around and they're going to help you score and what have you. Again, this one's a little bit of a stretch for me on the theme. It's um, these Each of these cards are themed as characters, but I'm, I'm not sure... How we do we suddenly take control of the abbot? Is this a game of demonic possession? I'm, I, I don't know. Sure. Anyway, moving on from that, the interesting thing with these ten cards is, in the first round, you all play a card simultaneously and you flip them over. Fine. Then you start going around in player order. When I'm choosing which card to play from my hand, I cannot play any card that has already been played out in front of someone else. So if there's four of us playing and people have played the number two, the number five, and the number seven on last turn, I can't choose the two, five, or seven. I must choose something different. So there's a little bit of interaction there, I guess. There's some interaction as well in that spaces in the Abbey are limited, uh, and therefore where you want to go and hide your, your different treasures is going to be slightly limited. And also you can score points for being next to people or in the same room as people in different ways. So there's some light interaction going on. If you do forget about this rule, and if you do play a card already showing, then you actually lose a victory point. So there's no takesy-backsies at all in this game. The game finishes when one player has got their treasures in all 13 rooms in the Abbey, or if no one's been able to do that, there's a limited number of those treasure tiles and those neutral ones. If they run out, then the game's over as well. At the end of the game, everyone's going to have scored points during the game for hiding their treasures, hopefully by using their cards. They're going to score bonus victory points for how many different rooms they've been able to hide their treasures in. Sean Templar, it looks like it's going to be aimed as the family-friendly Euro this year from Queen Games at Essen. Have you got any thoughts on it? It's a funny one. It has got a really weird theme, and I'm not quite sure why I'm hiding treasure all around the place. It's a very very simple game there's not a lot to it it's a very pretty game it looks nice uh, i'm not a big fan of the is it the docks where you go out to get all your treasures in these warehouses that looks a bit weird and, uh, i'm not sure that that works as a mechanic even there's not a whole heap to say about this it's very simple i like the fact that there are different pawns and pieces that you can play and they've all got their different powers and you've got to be very very careful about how you use your cards with that caveat that you can't use a card that somebody's used on this turn so people can block each other with that so i think there's a there's a little bit going on very easy to pick up i think younger gamers will be able to pick this game up and it might be a game to play with the younger members of your family i'm going to probably refer back to the, the two games and compare it to which are escape and fresco the main reason being is I think the only reason I have interest in this game is because it's come from Queen. I think it's going to be their big release, and those are the games they've released before. In terms of those two games, Escape, you can play it with younger people because it's such an easy game. You're just rolling dice simultaneously and trying to move around the board. I know you don't like it, but I like it a lot. And so it worked both as a family and also a game for gamers as something a little bit different fresco again especially if you didn't add any of the modules that were within it was a real simple work placement game with some interesting mechanics and you could play it with older kids and they can enjoy it and have fun and, and sort of develop as gamers from that and if you added those modules in i think it was a real good sort of light medium euro game an hour and a half i still play it now i really enjoy fresco that's the only reason really i have faith in templar that that you know they're going to do it again they're not going to release something that's no good it feels like there's a little bit of 
victory point salad going on. It seems like everything scores all the time. When you're moving those characters around in order to score points, I think you score points for every treasure in a room. But conversely, you can score bonus points for every room you've used. So you're not likely to want a monopoly in a room. So it seems like when you're making that score and you're going to score points for everyone, which seems like kind of, yeah, everyone's going to stay pretty close together. Everyone's got the same actions. Is anyone going to be pulling away? Is it all going to be very close and nicey-nicey and no one's getting get destroyed in this game? What do you think, Sean? As you said, it's almost like a catch-the-leader mechanic built into the game where the rooms are going to get built up, so they're, they're going to be there for everyone to, to sort of go in and score. I know that you flip the tiles of the treasures and the treasure can only be used once, but because you've only got the use of these cards sporadically, everyone's going to be eventually going out to the harbour to bring in the treasures and they're going to put them where they need to put them. And Yeah, I think it's going to be a tight game. It's going to be... Uh, game as i said an easy game to learn but i'm i don't see the fun in this game i don't see where the fun factor of this game is going to come i don't think that there's enough decisions and that they're interesting decisions we're definitely going to get a chance to see it played because trust me you will see dozens and dozens and dozens of table of this being played when we get to essen so we're going to get a chance to have a proper look at it and make a decision then but for now sean what are your thoughts on templar the secret treasures it looks pretty, but there's just not enough there for me. That's why I found it quite difficult to talk about this game, because I just don't feel like there's enough in this game for me. So for me, it's going to be a trap. And for me, while I hope otherwise, I think Queen might have dropped the ball on this one. Initial impressions, I think this is going to be a trap. Next up, a movement of tack. We're going to be going to a game called Yanan which is designed by Aaron Haag, who is a new designer, as far as I can tell. And it's published by Argentum Verlag. Plays two to five players with a time frame of about 90 minutes. It's a worker placement, route building, area movement game with auctions thrown in as well. Players in Yunnan become tea traders, but it's not just any old tea. It's the much sought after, and I do apologise for this pronunciation, Puerti. The general aim of the game is to establish a large and robust trade network that will allow you to deliver to the provinces. But there is more to it than that, as you will need to build up your social influence, train new workers, and even bribe officials. The game kicks off with an auction phase, where players will pay to place their workers or traders, as they are in this game, in one of the progress buildings, which allows you to train new traders, which increases your team, gain influence, get a border pass to increase the borders that your traders can pass, a horse that will allow you to move further afield, and you can construct buildings and structures to help you achieve your goals. You can also place your traders in the bank or the market of Puer. Next up, is the travel phase. This is when your traders head out into the big wide world and attempt to establish trade routes. In this round, players can move their traders, build trading posts, displace other players, and so on. The idea is to connect a trade route back from your furthest player, or one of your players at least, back to Puer. Each area also has a number of presents, which are given to the strongest player in terms of traders and influence together and they the strongest player will get their fair share depending on how many traders they've got in their area and so on and then the next person 
But beware, at the end of the phase, the province inspector will head out and will look to banish one trader back to Puer. Now this is where the bribery that I mentioned earlier comes in. Players can build tea houses, and basically what they're doing is inviting the inspector in for a nice cup of tea and talking them into not banishing them. So anyone with a tea house in the area cannot be banished. Also trading posts can't be banished, so it's just unprotected traders that can be banished and they have to go back to Puer and start again. The last phase is the players work out their profit and the turn order is decided. The game ends when somebody achieves 80 points or there are no presents left and the final scoring takes on things like border passes, influence, tea houses, all into account as well as the victory points you've already earned. As I said before, the game plays two to five but the two-player game is actually kind of like a variant it's not set up in the same way slightly different and there's also a professional game where any debt that you have you have to pay with your victory points in the main game you don't have to do that as always there's a lot more to it but i think this is a pretty accurate general overview Ronan, sean this is the most euro euro that ever euroed in europe on a european day of europosity what are you trying to say it's quite Euro. <laughs> it's you do things to get things to turn things to get VP, right? That's right. That's going to sound like I'm saying it's a negative. I love Euro games, so I'm quite happy about that, to be honest. It's got an interesting theme. It's not set again in Europe. At least it's gone somewhere else. I quite like the auction mechanic. I like that there's um, different places you can go to. So you can concentrate on, on different strategies, if you like. You can go hard on horses uh, and then use your bridges or whatever you and fire out into the provinces and try and do well out there although I think the tax collector might stomp on you if you do that or there's one of the things if you've got high influence which you get through the auctions you can actually kick people out you can kick their traders out of some of the villages so maybe you can concentrate on doing that and start bullying the, the board a little bit I like that there's a bit of flexibility there I'm not sure there's huge broad strategic flexibility but I, it does seem like that there's a few decisions to be made. There's not just one path to go down. Initially, for me, it's it's a very boring theme, a tea trader. But everything you do does make thematic sense. And they actually make it sound quite interesting in the end. I love the fact that you've got to entice this poor little provincial inspector into your tea house and bribe him with a nice cuppa. Have you seen trouble for enticing inspectors into tea houses before? <laughs> I thought we weren't going to talk about that. They're still looking for him, right? Moving on, moving on. There does seem to be a lot of choices in this game, and I, it's daunting at first. You look at that board, and there seems to be so much going on. But when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, it all makes sense, and you're going to go to one area to increase your influence and there's an influence tracker and one area to get your buildings and you can choose what buildings you're going to build and building up. Do you do, you do it slow and steady by building actual trade outposts and that means that nobody can take them away from you or do you risk it, as Ronan said, go out into the provinces really quickly with just traders and a few bridges and it's quite a risky strategy. Do you protect your traders with tea houses? The provincial inspector is going to go for the highest grossing area. If there's a tie, he's going to go to the furthest area. So do you hedge your bets and go for lower value? I think there's a lot of things to be thinking about in this game and it's 
got me got my mind worrying already as the possibilities of it. Mm, <laughs> I'm not sure I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there's auctions, you win on one of five or six different tracks, and then you put your dudes out to score some points. I actually thought it was quite simple. <laughs> Uh, no, I think there's more to it than that. I think it, I think there's a, a bit of depth in it rather than just, there you go. I'll have that and I'll go out there. I think you've got to think ahead. I think you've got to think two or three turns ahead. As we said at the beginning of the, of the podcast, all three episodes so far, it's just an initial impression. We've still yet to play these games, but I've just got an inkling it's going to be quite deep and quite thought-provoking. Well, <laughs> what I do think, actually, that some of the depth will come from is it does seem really really interactive for a euro okay although i was saying that's the most euro euro ever the the half the game is the auctions at the beginning in which you can outbid each other and move ahead what's really interesting about that is that bank mechanic in that if you go to the bank you reset all your bids so you take them all off and you don't have to pay for them and also you get some money depending upon how late in the game it is and, and it can be lots of money later on so you know, you can drive prices up and then suddenly, boom, you're out there and you're instead of paying a load of money, you're getting a load of money, which will really set you up for the next turn. I also think that because there's limited spaces on the, on the routes out into the provinces and you can build bridges to make shortcuts and what have you, and there's different ways of building your, uh, your route and different ways of using your route, that it's going to be quite interactive on, on where you go in both stages in the outbidding each other and also in in where you're putting your uh, your merchants out on that t road and blocking other people and and getting a dominance in certain regions what have you and i think you score more points for more people in a region and I think that for its type of game and where the depth is going to come from is in having some players who who are willing to kind of spice it up a little yeah, I can definitely see that, and I think the fact that there is that direct, almost combat, if you like, between the players is going to add a lot of spice to it. I know I said I really like the Inspector, but my initial thoughts on this Inspector mechanic, where he goes out and basically just pleases the provinces, is that on in a rule book it felt like it was something that they've playtested the game and thought, oh, where's... There's there's not enough repercussions out there. Let's let's add an inspector, and it felt like it might have been tacked on. Now, that's not a bad thing because, as I said, I'm really I'm really excited by the thought of this inspector piece. But it felt like it was tacked on to me. You know, it looks like maybe someone got a whole load of horses and just fired off into the distance, and no one could get near them. And so they went, yeah. "Oh, we've got to stop that from happening." So they brought an inspector in. But you know, look good it shows they play tested and then they found that there was one slight problem with it and they brought something in and now it's something else you have to think about it's something that oh yeah i could do that but i'm going to get hit by that inspector also i think it doesn't it reward you if you have more influence so i think four influence or something like that then you're immune to him so from the looks of things and from the tips they put in the rule book getting influence is really important early it looks like that might be an area that gets fought over and that's one of the early decisions because in some of these games where you're building up your network whatever the first couple of rounds everyone's after this so, you know, they don't mind if they don't get column A because they'll get column B and you'll get column C and then we'll all swap around in the first three rounds. We've all got A, B, C in some sort of way. Whereas with this influence it seems to be quite powerful and it's something to be fought over early because of the kicking out and ignoring the inspector and getting a head lag up in it is quite, it's quite important. So I, I like that. I like that there's something that's important early on. So, as we said, it's a very Euro Euro. Your thoughts on it? My final thoughts are it's a Euro, Euro-y that I'm probably going to spend Euros on because I like the look of it 
I like a nice stinky medium weight Euro. I like the fact that there's going to be some interaction from those things and I am sold. It's a treasure. So for me, uh, the theme, the theme's the thing that's holding me back from making it a definite treasure. I just don't know if I can get excited about trading tea, but I think it's a tentative treasure. And if you buy it, I'll be more than happy to play it with you. The next game I'd like to chat about in this Essen preview is Lewis and Clark. Now, Lewis and Clark is coming from Ludonort Games and is from a new designer called Cedric Chaboussi. Now, uh, full disclaimer here, Cedric did come along to London on board one time and I met him and his wife and lovely people they were too. So that's put me in the mood to be liking this game straight away. Lewis and Clark is based around the expedition by Meriwether Lewis and William Clark to explore and map large parts of the United States after uh, Louisiana was purchased from Napoleon. This is a theme that is going to be very much more familiar to uh, our American friends than it is to us Europeans. They, they're not so famous over here, but certainly I think it's a large part of American history that's going to be very familiar to lots of people. The game is for one to five players, and the playing time is around two hours, but when you have a playing range that big, give or take a few minutes here and there. Now, Ludonort are probably best known for publishing the likes of Yggdrasil, Little Prince Make Me a Planet, Off Ranges. They like to make very nicely produced games with, uh, with good components, which is another good sign for Lewis and Clark. So how does the game actually work? There's a main board on there, and on the main board there's a river. And on the river there's different spaces for camps. And all the different players, rather than actually taking the part of this Lewis and Clark expedition, you're going to be taking the roles of rival pretend explorers who are looking to be the first to make it across to the Pacific coast and you know within the game thematically have mapped that whole journey across so you're trying to be the first to do it. Along the river there are spaces for camps and the whole idea is for every player to try and slowly move their camp along the river to show their progress making all the way across the continent. Another large part of the game board is made up by the Indian village, which is one of the places you can go to to send your actions. You can recruit help from the natives during your expedition. Also, the spaces for cards to be laid out, and the playing of these cards and the acquisition of these cards is a large part of the game. The players are going to be following this route across the board, scouting ahead, trying to get information. You're going to be setting up camp in order to slow develop, as I said. And you're looking to manage the different members you bring into your expedition, because your expedition is going to grow and shrink. It's going to have boats in it. You're going to recruit different helpers. In order to recruit these helpers, and they're all shown by these cards down the side, you're going to have to pay resources. This game is very much a resource management game. It has this American theme and this American flavour to it and this very pretty board and it almost looks like a standard racing game but actually while the racing is how you win, it's how you manage your resources, how you purchase cards and how you manage the members of your expedition that's going to be how you're effective in this game. Don't let the looks put you off and make you think it's lighter than it is. This is quite a heavy, I'd say medium weight at least Euro game. Also, I'll talk about how you manage your expedition. If your expedition gets too big, it slows down. So you're going to have to stay effective, whittle away, and make sure you're focused on what you're doing. So like I said, you can recruit those Indians to help you go into the Indian village. You can recruit the other characters all the while collecting resources and spending them to move your camp along all the way to Fort Calsop. Sean, any thoughts on Lewis and Clark? Well, this one's actually, the essence buzz about this is really starting to grow now. I think it started off as a bit of a quiet release. Nobody knew much about it, but 
there's a, yeah, there's a real buzz building about this one. Now, if you look at the board, the final components, they're absolutely stunning. It's a beautiful game. It looks amazing. What do you think about that, Ronan? It just does look really nice. It's very striking. It's very colourful. It's clearly a Euro with all these wooden cubes around the place. But each player has their own tableau of characters and boats, what have you. It is a joy to see and a joy to play with with those bits. It's going to be really, really tight because if you get everything into your boats and everything onto your trailer, your pack trail, then you're going to go slower because you've got so much resources already in there. But if you go too light, you're going to be possibly be found in wanting a little bit down the line. So it's going to be a real fine balance to this game. Now, another thing that really interests me about it is that, again, it's another fine balance, is the fact that you have to use cards to power other cards. So there's going to be some really tricky decisions as to what cards you use to take the power from and what cards you use to power them so that's another interesting mechanic that makes me sit up and take notice of this game it certainly is a medium weight euro in a a light games clothing it's very much first players when you start off i think look at it and go oh yeah this is easy we just jump jump ahead and jump ahead and with as with all good euros the problems mount the strategies you start with early, you're going to have to adapt to. You have to adapt to what other people are doing because if you set up to go after certain resources to power your cards and it's not available because other people are taking it, you're going to have to be able to swing across and take advantage of openings that manifest themselves. Now, Sean, this theme, it's very much a US-centric theme. I don't know anything about Lewis and Clark at all other than I've heard the names before. Do you think that the target audience is going to be put off by the looks and by the theme? It's exactly the next thing I was going to talk about. This is a very, very American theme. It's, it's all about discovering America, and it's something that Americans would have grown up with this story. The only thing I really know about is the Pocahontas side, and we've all heard of Pocahontas. I think that this game might be the one that sort of garner interest from both sides of the Atlantic on this one. I think it's got the production values and the the bling, if you want, of a quite a major American game release. But it's got the mechanics and the intricacies of a Euro game, so it could it could appeal to no one. But I think my my gut feeling on this one is it's going to appeal to both. Well, yeah, it's like you say, it's not a well-known designer. Ludonort, they're established, but they're not a really well-known publisher. If it can make that jump, I think my opinion is. It's going to be one of those that at Essen, it starts buzzing and it's going to appear on those buzz lists. There's, there's a couple of main ones that appear actually in the halls. People are going to start searching it out. More people are going to start playing it. I think it's going to get a real jump start out of this Essen and it may be a, a real breakthrough uh, title. As you say, it's successful on both sides of the Atlantic. Obviously, we're giving out a lot of positive feelings here. Sean, do you want to finish off and crystallise what you think about this one? Yeah, for me, it was the game that initially on my first scan of the of the SM releases, I, I just went straight past because of the theme. I wasn't really interested in the theme. And then you chose it as one of the games you wanted to look at for, for this podcast. So I took a look at it and I was immediately drawn in by the beauty of the game. And then my interest was kept by how well it seems to play. So for me... I think it is going to have a Essen buzz. I think when people do see this game, they're going to stop and take notes, and they are going to get drawn in by the 
the gameplay and the mechanics and the, the finer points of it. So for me, it's going to be a treasure. Exactly the same for me. I think people will come for the looks and they'll stay for the gameplay. I think it appeals all around. As long as you're willing to spend a couple of hours having a good think and trying to solve a good puzzle and you don't mind there not being too much interaction, so you're more on the Euro side of liking games, I think this is a definite treasure coming out of this year's Essen. Right, next up is a game called Trains and Stations. It's designed by Eric M. Lang, who is quite famous in the game world. He of Call of Cthulhu, Chaos in the Old World, A Game of Thrones, the card game, Quarriers, and so much more. It's published by WizKid Games. Plays three to five players with approximate time of 45 minutes. It's a dice-rolling, a root-building game at heart. You are rail barons in this game, and you're competing to amass your fortune on the railway by constructing buildings, securing monopolies in the valuable goods. The main objectives for the game are to deliver by completing routes between cities using your dice, develop by constructing buildings, and these will give you goods every time your city is delivered to, and finally, profit by connecting two cities highlighted in your mission cards. So how do you play? Let's start with the dice. Each dice has six different faces, which consist of a coin, hotel, mine, ranch, train, and a locked train. Each turn, players will roll five dice, and should they wish to re-roll, they must pay a coin. So what do the dice results mean? The coin equals two coins. Simple, you just get two coins from the bank. The hotel, the mine, and the ranch are the buildings that you can construct, and you're going to get the corresponding buildings and place it. But to do this, you must have three of the same face. For instance, you must have three hotels to get the hotel piece and place that. The trains are basically your means to place your trains on the board and are used to build the routes and a locked train result cannot be re-rolled. And if there should be three of them at any time, you will suffer a strike, lose three points and be unable to re-roll any further dice. Players can save any number of dice results for their next turn. When routes are connected, this triggers a delivery where players will get one victory point per dice that they have in the route per city connected. And there are bonuses for the player with the most dice in this route. Any players with buildings in the connected cities will get the corresponding good cards. At the end of the game, your players will add up points from their completed mission cards, which are completed when anyone connects two cities shown on the card. Bonus points are handed out to players with the most of each good type, one other thing is that completed victory points cards must be placed face up and negotiation is strongly encouraged in this game. Hence, if you can see what everybody's already completed, so you can see possibly who's leading the game. So there's going to be a bit of chat around the table. So that's Trains and Stations. Ronan. Well, to start with, let's go right to the heart of the matter. This is being published by WizKids. And WizKids have really lost my trust when it comes to their production of games. I know components aren't the be-all and end-all to a game, but I do feel like if I'm spending money, I want to get a decent product. I don't have faith that when I spend money on a WizKids product, I'm going to get good quality. I look at how ships and fleet captains, for example, just snap apart and the clicks don't work properly. My nieces and nephews have got hundreds of hero clicks and they just fall apart when someone blinks their eye wrong at them. The dice inquiries were a real disappointment. So 
starting from the very basics, I don't expect that I'm going to open this box and be wowed by what I find inside it. I mean, straight away, that board. Is it a board or is it a player mat? It's tiny. It's absolutely microscopic. But yeah, I get what you're saying about WizKids games. I mean, I'm actually quite a big fan of WizKids. I think they do bring really interesting and heavily themed games, which I like. And Star Trek Fleet Captains is one of my favourite games that I own. But I do see where you're coming from. And there's always going to be that moment when you open the box and you're kind of scouring. So where's the disappointment coming from? Back to the board. It's, it's very small. I'm not sure how functional it's going to be. I suppose it's going to hold enough dice, but it's very bland. It's just, if I can remember correctly, it's just it's just in beige and brown. Is that right? Yeah, and it's got real blocky-looking spaces. And I mean, you say Fleet Captains. Look, that's a real fun game. I like playing it. Rulebook. <laughs> Another WizKids <laughs> letdown. That rulebook. To be fair, they couldn't mess this rule book up because there's not a whole heap of rules to it. But yeah, that rule book in Fleet Captains was a nightmare. But let's not, let's stop dogging on WizKids. Let's talk about this particular game. Okay. I am not a fan of dice games with this, you know, Yahtzee mechanic whereby you're rolling them and you're trying to get combinations. Uh, there's not a lot of them that do it in a very interesting way. I don't mind playing King of Tokyo. I think that's a fun little filler as long as it finishes fairly soon. They talk about things like zombie dice. I think it's just brainless. I didn't even really like Roll Through the Ages that people yeah, say is one of the best ones. So straight away, they're on the wrong foot. I don't have faith in publisher, and I don't like the mechanic. Now, one particular one here is if you're unlucky enough to roll three of the train symbols that have the locked symbol on them, which you know can happen on your first or second roll, just bad luck. Not only can you not do anything, you also lose points and you can't do any more re-rolls. So you're losing a turn, you're losing points because you've been unlucky enough to roll some stupid symbols. Oh, that just drives me crazy. That would be table through the window, game alight, it's all over. I'm off to do something else. It's, it's hard to tell, but from a distance and not having played the game, that does seem like a real game changer. If you were unlucky to do that, I don't know, two, three times in a game, and just yeah, yeah, and everyone else doesn't do that. Is that just going to completely scupper everything you're trying to do? You've stuck with these dice. You've got a strike. You're losing victory points. Yeah, it seems like a really harsh penalty for a dice roll. I mean, and, you know, it's in game and out of game, isn't it? It's in game. You're getting penalised just for being unlucky. Okay, fine. But out of game, how is that fun? I want to play games that are fun. Where is the fun in that mechanic? <laughs> As you said, table flip country there. Um, I don't, also, away from the dice, now of course there's always going to be an element of luck in dice, but away from that, these mission cards, again, it's something that we, we played a game called Masons once upon a time. No, and... Sean, stay away from the Masons. <laughs> they need to know. We're not they going to a to happy know. place here, are we? <laughs> and our big problem with Masons is that you can have your go and finish somebody else's go, and then you get two points, and they get eight points. Well, how's that fair? I've just spent ages finishing my go and getting my two points, but I've given you eight points. I didn't. I had no way of knowing you were getting eight points. It's not fair. There's, there seems to be something on a much, much lighter scale. There seems to be something similar with these root cards. Nobody knows what you've got, so you could be completing someone's big, long root for them wasting your dice to get to something that might give you two or three points this might give them 10 points it just yeah things like that just get to me because i've no way i've got of knowing you've got that card 
again, that's just one more frustrating seeming mechanism in there. And if you're going to give me a quick dice rolling game, take take all the frustration out. Just just take them away. I don't want them. I don't want to be frustrated. I don't want to be handing other people points. I don't want to be sitting here saying I'm going to score four points, but you're going to score three points. That's just irritating. Yeah, one one more thing before we round up on this game. And don't get me wrong, this game is actually creating a lot of buzz. And it was actually something we mentioned back in our first treasure hunt as something we were interested in. So it might actually turn out to be quite good. From my impressions now, I've changed from my initial excitement to a little bit of dread. But another another thing is this negotiation thing. Is it going to work in a, in a very light game? No, it works brilliantly in a game like Spartacus, where it's very highly themed, and it's all garnered around this big discussion. And okay, There is this level of interaction where you can all dive on the leader. Now, if you all dive on the leader in this one, is it not just going to be overly played? Like It's, it's supposed to be a quick, fun game, and if, if everyone's just diving all over the leader every time someone takes the lead or com- completes a mission card and have it face up, I don't know that the negotiation and the discussion is going to work in this game at all. Yeah, I mean, the buzz that I've heard, it's along the lines of buzz you hear for lots of games that tend to disappoint me. It's that... Oh, you know, funny things can happen. You're not quite sure what's going to happen next. Uh, you don't have to plan because anything can happen on a turn sort of thing. Where you're like, well, I could go and ask people to slap me in the face and have that. I don't know what's going to happen next. I'm playing the game. I want to have some idea of what's going to happen. I want to feel like my input is having a significant difference on what's going to happen at the end. I'm not sure that my input is going to have any difference when I play Trains and Stations. It's just who's going to roll luckiest and who happens to create synergies with the other players, which allows them both to score. I'm really feeling frustrated with it, but the nail in the coffin, I think, for me, is that if you want to talk Trains games and you want to talk rolling dice, you have to talk rolling freight, which is way, way heavier than this. It's a couple of hours long, but a game that I really enjoy. Now, I'm not a train game fan, but I do like rolling freight. The designer has revealed that when he was demoing the game and trying to get a publisher, he made some mini-maps, and these were maps that were much quicker than the main game. They could be played 35 to 45 minutes, have a whole game done. Since the game has come out, he's actually had requests from people that played those demo maps saying, why aren't those available? Because they were great. We had so much fun with them. It's a whole game of rolling freight in, in a much more condensed space of time. The same space of time you can play trains and stations in. Now, if you're offering me rolling freight in 45 minutes which has planning, action selection, building up my own special powers. I can see a, a strategy and I can progress towards something. Or trains and stations where I roll dice and I can get blocked out and lose points because I rolled three locked dice. There is only one choice for me. Rolling Freight is a cracking game. For me, rounding up, I don't mind the, the complete luck mechanic and I don't I not mind things just hit, coming at you and you can't really react to them until it happens. That's fine, but well, fun games and fun themes. This doesn't fall into that category for me. It seems a little bit too luck-driven for what it is, and for me, it's going to have to be a trap. When we first mentioned this in our first Treasure Hunt show a few months ago, we were both excited because designers got some pedigree, and the idea that you were going to look at both creating the, the track and also having to run the stations, given we're both working in the railway industry, we were like, great, this will be you know, taking a different view on things and down to the actual day-to-day operations of how to run railway lines. And what we've got is a luck-fest, Yahtzee-type game, which is 
I don't have faith it's going to be nice to produce and it looks to be frustrating. And for me, this has got trap written in big, huge red letters all over it. The final game we're going to cover in this episode in our Essence Spiel previews is Legacy, The Testament of Duke de Creasy. This is a card game and it's based around the theme of building up your family dynasty in 18th century France, pre the French Revolution. So you're a member of the aristocracy and you're trying to build a legacy that will see you through the troubled times that are coming ahead. It's for one to four players. It plays in roughly 60 minutes. It's the first game from designer uh, Michel Justin Elliott Hendricks, but it is also out of the uh, Portal Publishing House, which has published such games as Robinson Crusoe, Nurishima Hex, Stronghold, and Theseus, which we covered a couple of episodes ago. This is very much a card-driven game. It comes with around 200 cards. There's a main board, some, some boards for each player, some markers, wooden pawns, what have you, standard Euro fare. This game is played out over three generations of the family. So it's going to be the generation of yourself, then you're going to have children, and then you're going to have grandchildren. And you're going to try and grow these children up, find the marriages, take part in business ventures, invest in property. All the while, every generation, you're going to score honour points. And whichever family has got the most honour points after the three generations is going to win the game. It's an action selection game with pawns. Now, you use your wooden pawns either on your own board to select actions or on the main board. Um, like I said, you can marry, you can have children, you can look to gain money through business, you can attempt to get titles, you can contribute to society, you can do business ventures. You've got a main goal, which is called your patron goal for the whole game, so you can start working towards that. There are missions you can actually get given. Now, I don't think they're going to be slay the goblin chieftain. They're going to be something to do with society. You're going to be looking to make an impression here or make some money there. And like I said, you can invest in property. You're going to be using your family connections and friends in order to create marriages and have children and then use those children again to expand your web and your family and each generation, you're going to gain more actions. You're going to get more action pawns. There's going to be more to do in every round. And also, there's going to be new titles and contributions which you can, can use. So the game evolves over time. Each round, you're building up prestige through all your actions. So you, it's your face in society. It's, it's how the rest of your peers view you that's what's important. Because at the end of the round, it's that current prestige score you have that turns into honor points. And it resets. And the next generation are looking to build up their prestige and so on and so forth it's a 60 minute game plenty of components coming from a big publishing house but the first time designer sean what are your first thoughts on legacy the testament of duke de Creasy? well my first thoughts are it's all about the theme for me in this one the theme really interests me this we're almost building this family through the ages. Each marrying people off, they're having children. The children then grow up, and I wonder, like, if you're even going to get like attached to this family tree that you're building. As I said, the theme is really strong. I'm not sure how much different mechanics are coming out at you, but I think there's enough in it to hold your interest, Renan. I think that's now hit firmly on the head there. This is getting a huge amount of buzz coming in to this essence. Now, first part is any portal game nowadays is going to get buzz. So if you're lucky enough to be a designer who gets picked up by them, you've already got that kick up. You're going to get a certain number of sales and you're going to get your game out there a bit. With this one, it is a really, really interesting theme. This idea of building your family up and within also that sort of particular era and place and time is very interesting 
and there's kind of a little disconnect there that you're supposed to know that the revolution's on its way. Now, I guess, you know, sure, some people might have, have read the political waters and seen something like that was going to happen, but you know it's coming in three generations. You're going to prepare for it. You're looking to make your family future-proof in those terms. So you're not just going to be an aristocracy. You're going to be able to take part in society. The theme is really interesting, but from reading the rules and looking at it, I feel a little bit disappointed in that they don't seem to have been as innovative with the mechanisms as they have with the theme. I think that from the looks of things, this could have been set anywhere and there's a few different ways it would have worked and it still would have been exactly the same mechanisms. It's action selection to score points. Yeah, like a whole lot of other Euros. Now the cards are going to add variety and flavour and what have you, but could they have been a little bit more innovative? I think they could have. I mean, the game that this one reminds me of in just its style is is Last Will. And Last Will brought nothing new to the plate either, but still a hugely enjoyable game. And that's the hope I have for this game. As you said yourself, it's just a simple action selection thing where one action might get you a title, one action might get you, another action might get you a husband for the female character of the family and or a wife for the, for the male character. I can't see anything that I'm really jumping up and down in that. I can't even think of anything that excites me about the mechanics of the game. But I was exactly the same for Last Will, and I actually really enjoy Last Will. Last Will always had kind of that jokey theme going on. So I felt that the whole idea was, was kind of quite funny. You're looking to spend a fortune in order to gain a fortune, the Bruce's Millions idea. So when they had sort of the cartoony artwork and the, the cliched sort of toffs doing toff things, it was quite funny. This game, I feel like the theme is something a bit more serious and something a bit meatier. And when I read the descriptions, I think, wow, there could be something really here. This getting to grips with a time and a place and a society and really having to put yourself into the shoes, now whether you agree with them or not, and having to take actions from their point of view. I was really interested. I was really like, oh, this could be involving, interesting, a, a, a different view on things. And then I saw the flipping artwork. And it's like someone took Last Will and then made it 300% worse in the same vein. Jokey cartoony, stereotyped, and ugly. I knew you were going to start <laughs> about the artwork, yeah. It doesn't really fit with the theme. It doesn't doesn't sort of lend itself to the game, and I don't think it does the game any favours. I don't think it's hideous, but it just doesn't seem to marry up with, as you said, the theme of the game and this big story where you're building generations of your family. And borrow your word, and again, it's a meteor game the last will so almost expect a more serious art design but it isn't i was hoping that they'd take the theme seriously and then therefore have something to say about the whole situation as opposed to go down the cliche route now when you look not just in the, the artwork but when you look at who the characters are what their backgrounds are that actually ties into how they work in the game now, that's a very clever thing to do you could have done that with some merit rather than gone for sort of cheap giggles with it and made them kind of corny and cheesy it's just it's rubbing me up the wrong way it's oh it's grating on me a bit it's, I, I feel like this game could have been a bit better than the cheap laughs they're trying to get out of it so anything you want to add before we sum up Ronan? well i know you said that thematically it felt like last will but just come with me on this little stretch in terms of gameplay 
it's reminding me quite a bit of Robinson Crusoe. Now, okay, Robinson Crusoe is a co-op survival game. This is most definitely not that. But in terms of the lots of cards available so that every game is going to be slightly different. In terms of the action pawn, so you're doing action selection, a couple each round, and then you get specific ones as your bonuses, which are only good for certain areas. So you might get a, a bonus action pawn for your, for your second round, for example, but it would only help you invest in properties. It helps sort of guide your strategy in a certain way. And Robinson Crusoe is very similar. If you could get extra pawns, it would take you in a certain direction. There's a feel here for me of Robinson Crusoe, and I really love that game, and I'm hoping it can pull me away from this brink of cheese and take me back into the uh, the meat and potatoes of a good thematically strong mechanically tough game yeah i'm not 100 percent sure i was with you on that entire journey but i kind of see what you're getting at with the very very base mechanics of the game robinson crusoe is a fantastic game i'm not sure yet that this is going to be even close to to matching it theme or mechanics but my final thoughts on the game i think all the depth here is almost superficial the mechanics of the game are very simple as we've stressed i think the depth is in the theme and how far they've delved into this theme to make the theme make sense and to make it all work together i love a bit of theme so oh god i'm really not sure which way to go on this one but i am going to say it is a very very slight treasure okay for me how good this game is, is all going to be down to how the cards interact and how clever they've made these combinations and whether it's down to clever play that you can exploit them and, and find different routes and, and follow different strategies that you're not led by the nose too much. The main problem for me is that it looks so but ugly in that artwork that I'm not sure I'm going to give it the chance that maybe it deserves. So for me, just because I cannot get over it, it's going to have to be a trap. So there you have it, six more games that we'll be showing in essence soon. I hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll be back soon with another six games. would like to remind you that we are now proud members of the Dice Tower Network. You can head over to dicetowernetwork.com and catch a listing of loads of great gaming podcasts. You can get hold of all of our episodes plus more audio, video and written content about games on 2d6.org. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we are at GamePitPodcast. If you want to have a chat with us, you can get hold of us on email. It's thegamepitpodcast at gmail.com. Theme by Pete Harris.